Hey, good morning, Riverbend. How are we doing? Is everybody thankful for the air conditioning? Can I get an amen and an applause for the air conditioning? Right? Right? Yeah. All right. So, hey, uh, as Joe said, my name is Michael DeSelm. Uh, I'm really, really thankful that I get a chance to stand up here and share with you a little bit about what we're going to be talking about through the book of Hosea in a series called Extraordinary Love. Quick survey, show of hands, who loves breakfast? Who loves breakfast? Breakfast is my favoritest meal of the day, like favoritest meal, like favoritest favorites, eggs, bacon, pancakes, and of course, coffee. Breakfast is such a versatile meal, it really is. It's not limited to a time of day. Heck, in my house, breakfast, we love it so much, we do it for dinner sometimes. Can I get an amen? <clears throat> now, Cracker Barrel has to be one of my favorite chain restaurants. If you're going to go do a chain, Cracker Barrel's where it's at. Those little bottles of maple syrup, I promise you, are like crack. They're amazing. I might go back to prison over a bottle. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I've never been to prison. Hold the phones. Uh, that said, when my wife and I and our kids, when we go on vacation, I always love to check out new breakfast joints. One of the places that we love to go, especially when we're in Ocean City, Maryland, is a place called Barn 134. If you love, amen, bring me back. If you love Crab's Egg Benedict, I promise you, it is almost heavenly. Almost heavenly. It's really, really good. Bad Monkey's not bad either, but Barn 34, the, uh, was it Captain Crunch French Toast? That is definitely something big in our house, Right? Uh, growing up for me and my family, though, breakfast, going out to breakfast, it didn't happen very often, so it was a super big deal. In fact, it was a really rare occurrence, and it became even more rare when, at the tender age of 39, my stepfather suffered a heart attack. Whoa, and like overnight, snap, everything left the house that was good, especially the salt and the bacon. We got, instead of bacon, we had not bacon. We had, instead of eggs, we had egg substitute, not eggs. We, instead of pancakes, they, they remained, but that amazing maple syrup I just talked about was gone. We're placed with some poor facsimile of sugar-free, looks like, but isn't really syrup. Uh, high fructose corn syrup, maybe, I don't know, maybe some sort of either the pink cancer, the blue cancer, or the yellow cancer, whichever packet you prefer. Um, now, I realize that not everybody in the house today is a meat eater. Maybe not everybody in the house today is a breakfast person. There's grace for all of you. You will be forgiven. Um, some things, though, uh, can we all agree that there are some things that just shouldn't be substituted? There are some things that you just can't substitute. You can't trade things out, right? Uh, for instance, in my house, we've chosen to make some dietary adjustments. It's no secret that I am, uh, what, six months removed uh, in cancer-free. Amen. Um, there's been some dietary changes with that. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, uh, we can't confirm, but we have reason to suspect that she might be lactose intolerant. Um, and so we've chosen to swap out the milk. Now, she hasn't been tested. We haven't been to a specialist to confirm this thing. But we can't explain this horrible belly pain she gets after she has a glass of milk or the intractable other symptoms that come with lactose intolerance. <laughs> but we are reasonably confident in connecting those dots. That said, if I want to make Saturday morning slapjacks, the best thing I can do to serve my wife as an act of love is to swap out the milk. Now, we've tried all sorts of different kinds of milk. We've tried soy milk. We've tried coconut milk. We've tried almond milk. I think we've even tried oat milk. Don't quote me on that. And while all present a reasonable facsimile of the real thing, they just aren't it. 
They're just not the same. They'd either make the pancakes runny, or even worse, they'd make them taste funny. Furthermore, by tinkering with just one thing on the recipe, in this case the milk, now it means I have to tinker with everything else in the recipe, okay, to compensate for this change. Sometimes it's add more sugar or less sugar or different sugar. Uh, maybe you've got to change out the olive oil or the butter or something like that. The end result is something that resembles pancakes, but it's not pancakes. They don't mix right. They don't cook right. They don't taste right. But I want pancakes. Men, can I get an amen when you get served a plate of food and you're hungry? You don't complain. You just eat the darn thing, right? Mmm. It's what we do. It's something in our programming. It's something about the way we're wired. Problem is, I eat this empty thing of pancakes, and my gut says, you're still hungry, because I didn't get real pancakes. Something was missing. And that's the most frustrating part, is in this well-intentioned attempt to accommodate a dietary choice, maybe even uh, uh, for a good reason, it hasn't resolved the issue of satiating my hunger. It's filled a void, but the void doesn't stay filled for very long, and it still feels empty. Now, does this analogy work better for my bacon-eating friends in the house? <laughs> you know, uh, maybe you're swapping out the pork with something like turkey or tofu? <laughs> There's just no substitute for the real thing. Whether it's pancakes, or more importantly, ladies and gentlemen, our relationship with God the Father. When we trade the truth about God for a lie, we are simply left wanting more. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. About why we need to fill up on the good things. The wholesome things. The real things. That God has for you, for me, and for his church. The things that he has created and designed and empowered us to do. As Joe preached about last week in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are all God's handiwork. Created in whose image? Created in who? In Christ Jesus. To do what? Good works. That God did what? Prepared in advance for us to do. Because when we fill up on the good things, the good things that God the Father has for us, there's just no room for sin. There's just no room for sin to take root and lead us astray. And this is where we find the Israelites in the book of Hosea. A nation divided. Divided between Ephraim, or the north country, and Judah, the southern kingdom. Both have separate leaders. Both are filling up on the wrong things. Both are filling up on things that lead them to sin, leaving no room for the good works that God has created, designed, or empowered them to do. So let's recap how we got here. The book of Hosea was written by a dude named Hosea. He was a prophet, also known as a speaker of truth. He was ordained by God of the same name. He was the son of a cool, cool guy named Barry. Love that dude's name. Which Hosea, interestingly, his word literally translates to the word salvation. The title of this book, ladies and gentlemen, is Salvation. Okay? Hosea is commissioned by God to marry a prostitute named Gomer, to bear children with her. Though she will likely return to her, cue the uh, Natalie and Bruglia song, Promiscuous Ways. Maybe that was a different singer. You guys know what I'm talking about. Over time, Gomer returns to the habits and the lifestyles of her youth, the sin that pulled her farther and farther away from God the Father. Hosea, under instruction from God the Father, is sent to go buy Gomer back. 
buy her out of her slavery, out of her wicked ways, to restore her as his wife. Written around 715 before Christ, Hosea chronicles the downfall of the northern kingdom, or Ephraim, which we uh, had nearly 40 years at that time, enjoyed really awesome economic prosperity. But the problem is that prosperity only seemed to benefit one class of people, the folks that already had the income. And the other thing that he was called to do is to speak truth to power, to speak plainly about sin, and to call a nation to return to God, the same God who had called them out of Egypt and out of slavery and equipped them to become a nation. So, like a good Baptist preacher, I've prepared for you three points today. Three things that I want you to think about. Three things that I want you to feel. And three things that I want you to act on. Number one, there's no such thing as a private sin. Number two, sin kills intimacy, creates confusion. But there's hope. Number three, God can redeem and restore. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I want to invite you to open up to Hosea chapter 7. If you don't have your own easy-to-read translation of the Bible, we have some out in the hallway. We would love for you to take one home, our gift to you. We believe everybody should be equipped with an easy-to-read translation of God's Word. It is the best way to understand the heart of God and to understand His deep, amazing, abiding love for you. So if you need a Bible, please grab one of ours out in the lobby. That said, it's also going to be up on the screen as... Robin has already so quickly put up there. Let's read together from Hosea chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Whenever I would heal Israel, the sins of Ephraim, that's the north country, we talked about this, are exposed and the crimes of Samaria are revealed. They practice deceit. Thieves break into houses. Bandits rob in the streets. But they do not realize that I remember all of their evil deeds. Their sins engulf them. They are always before me. Let's stop for a second. Let's pause. This is right in the middle of God speaking through Hosea to talk to the nation. This is literally God's words speaking to the nation. It's spoken from his perspective. And it almost reads, you can almost read the despair in his heart as God considers the deliberate waywardness of his people. It seems like no matter the goodness, no matter the amount of grace that God shows Judah or Ephraim, the people are unwilling to respond, and they are unwilling to turn their hearts to God. So he's done what he's done throughout the centuries. He's commissioned somebody to be his spokesperson. He's commissioned Hosea to go and speak truth. But he's sent countless prophets before Hosea, and yet still, the people just don't listen. They continue in their pursuits of selfish pleasure. Foolishly, they think they can have hidden their sin from God, or maybe that God is just too busy doing other things and so he's forgotten, which clearly is not the case. And so that brings me to my first point. Number one, there is no such thing as a private sin. I don't know about you guys, but my God is all-seeing, all-knowing. He exists beyond the confines of time and space. My God cannot be bound by anything. He is just too powerful for that. So if you think for an inkling of a second, ladies and gentlemen, that you can hide anything from him, you, you are the person who is mistaken. You are the person who is fooled. Consider the words of King David in Psalm 139 when he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? 
If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will surely hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, even the light will become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is a light to you. Ladies and gentlemen, God is not blind. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is eternal, and he sees everything. There is no place that you can go, even if you hop on out to the ever-expanding universe, which is still expanding, God will see you there. There is no such thing as a hidden, private, or forgotten sin. So here's my challenge for you today, ladies and gentlemen. Here's my challenge. What sin are you hiding? What sin are you hiding? Clearly, you're not hiding it from God. The scripture we just read points out that he's pretty all-seeing. What sin are you hiding? I know this is a tough question. I know asking yourself this question and being asked this question is very challenging. It's been asked me a number, number of times in my life. I know that there's shame involved because it's sin. I know that there's guilt involved because there's sin. I know there's disappointment and there's hurt involved because it's sin. Those all go with it. I know that it's eating you up every day. And I know every morning you wake up, you're wondering, is this the morning where somebody sees right through me? Where somebody looks at me and realizes I'm a fake. I'm a fool. I lived that for years, ladies and gentlemen. Don't live that life. If you have sin that is blocking you, that is keeping you from something, that is tripping you up on a daily basis, don't wait. Don't. Don't waste a single second. Fix it. And the only person you need to start with is you. And then you need to say, all right, God, I'm sorry I'm hiding it from you or trying to hide it. I'm really hiding it from myself, but come to a place of agreement with God the Father. Other people see it. Your friends, they probably love you so much that they either call you on it or they don't say anything about it because they know the life that you're living and you're struggling and you're in a hurt locker right now. But ladies and gentlemen, if you are outside the confines of what this talks about, don't waste another minute not fixing it before God. Every day is a good day to break free from sin. Let's pick up in Hosea chapter 7, verse 3. They delight the king with their wickedness, the princes with their lives, with their lies. They are adulter all adulterers burning like an oven whose fire the baker need not stir from the kneading of the dough till it rises. On the day of the festival, our king, the princes, become inflamed with wine, and he joins, with, joins hands with the mockers. Their hearts are like an oven. They approach him with intrigue. Their passion smolders all night. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings fall, and none of them calls on me. Hosea uses the imagery of a heated oven. Any bakers in the house? It takes time to turn an oven on and get it up and running, especially in the day that Hosea wrote this. The heated oven idiom here, or soliloquy, if you will, is 
parallel story for unbridled lust. Selfish, sensual desires that burn out of control. The baker's oven of, of Hosea's day was a brick fireplace that was heated with wood and with grass. And when that fire was stoked, somebody could cook on top of it or inside of it. When the baker went to bed, though, no longer used his oven, of course, he would let the fire die down. But Israel, described here in this passage, is described as a fuel, as a fire that fuels itself. That even when the day is done, the oven is still burning hot. Their sinful appetites burned out of control. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the problem with sin, with lust, and with vice. It burns beyond its boundaries. It is not confined to where it starts. Favorite quote that I remember hearing early in my Christian walk. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Unfortunately, the man who made that quote was caught up in his own sin that would not be revealed until years later. That said, the truth still stands. It will cost you more, it will take you farther, and it will be so hard to break out of. Lust is never satisfied. It fuels itself, really it does. Whether it's a lust for power or a lust for money or for sex or for alcohol or for fame, lust is a monster that every time you feed on it, its appetite increases. The lust requires increasing degrees of titillation. It needs to be further stoked. Israel had become like a self-stoking oven and it wouldn't die out on its own. Specifically noted in this passage is Israel's kings. It says all of their kings have fallen. They won't follow him. And from 1 Kings, one of the books of the Bible in the Old Testament, we learn that 19 kings who reigned over Ephraim, or the northern kingdom, all 19 of them were counted as wicked before the Lord. Throughout their 200-year reign existed nine different dynasties that all ruled over Israel, and yet intrigue, sabotage, lust, waywardness, debauchery, assassination were all the headlines of the time. God didn't promise to bless the northern kingdoms of Israel like he did the southern kings of David. Why? Because sin. Sin, sin, sin. Picking up in Hosea, verses 8 through 10 this time. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat loaf not turned over. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he does not notice Israel's arrogance testifies against him. But despite all of this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him. This is where my pancake analogy came from. This phrase right here, like a hot cake, or a pancake if you will. Across the entire Middle East, Bedouins will make pancakes on a hot griddle. They will cook one side, they will turn it over. If it is not turned over, it ends up charred on one side and gooey on top. Unsatisfying. Israel has become like a pancake that wasn't turned over. She kept repeating her mistakes. She kept stumbling over and over and over again. She never turned from her evil. She never changed. She kept following in the sin of the kings that they approved and appointed, not the kings that God placed in their, in their call. Sin, ladies and gentlemen will have a long-lasting effect if you do not address it. Verses 11 through 16. Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. 
When they go, I will throw my net over them. I will pull them down like the birds of the sky. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. Woe to them, because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, because they have rebelled against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak about me falsely. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but they wail on their beds. They slash themselves, appealing to other gods for grain and new wine, but they turn away from me. I trained them. I strengthened their arms, but they plot evil against me. They do not turn to the Most High. They are like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this, they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. More flighty than faithful, Israel continues to be like a dove flying here and there and here and there from capital to capital to capital, trying to drum up support to support their economy, to protect them from God's oncoming punishment. Anybody see parallels in modern day? They would, not, they would eventually be invaded and exiled to Babylon for 70 years. For 70 years because of their sin, their unwillingness to be faithful before the Lord. And instead of flying about here to four and here to there, what they should have done is land their plane, Ghost Rider. They should have stopped and got on their knees, got on their face and said, God, I'm sorry, we screwed up. We repent, we turn from our ways, we're seeking your face, Lord. But they didn't do that. They just kept flying about. And this brings me to my second point. Sin kills intimacy and creates confusion. Why are they flying all these different places? Because the sin that they've committed has clogged their ears and broken their hearts. They don't know what the voice of God sounds like anymore. And so they're flying from here to there and everywhere, trying to drum up support to protect themselves from the punishment that God is bringing to them. Punishment that is just. Because when we exist outside of God's plan, that sin has a cost. It will cost you more than you are willing to pay. It will take you farther than you're willing to go. Consider this. Gomer's willingness to re-engage in sex outside of the confines of marriage is more than a metaphor for the waywardness and distraction that Israel is facing at the time. It's really a broad reflection of your heart and mine. It's really a broad reflection of what we see today. Like Israel in the passage that we just read, we want what we want, when we want it, how we want it, regardless of whether it's good for us or not. And we don't care about its impact or the long-term side effects or the damage that it does because we want what we want. Everybody else be damned. God is holy in his perfection. He can't bear to be in the presence of sin. And because God is all-seeing and all-knowing and eternal, we talked about this, ladies and gentlemen, every time that you put things ahead of him or put more value in instead of him or think it's more important than your relationship with him, you are sinning. Period. I'm going to be very blunt. It's called idolatry. And if you check God's top ten, that's number one and number two on the list. Have no other gods before me. Don't make any images. So when you sin, you separate yourself. You separate yourself from the presence of God. Please hear me on this. Christian, especially Christian, when you sin, you separate yourself from the presence of God. Not yet Christian, curious person. 
hold us accountable to this. It breaks my heart when Christians go astray and then lead other people astray. Or when Christians start butting heads about who's right and who's wrong because not yet Christians are like, I don't want any part of that. And you're leading further people away from God. And that breaks God's heart. And it breaks mine. You walk away from the presence of God. It's your choice to not be in the presence of the Father. Think of it this way. It breaks the heart of God so much that when you sin, when you walk away, that because he loves you so much, he just stands there and watches you go. It's not that he couldn't compel you to stay. He could. He's God. I mean, he does whatever he wants. But he knows that love is a choice. Love is a choice, and it can't be compelled, and it can't be forced. So he does let you walk away. And when you walk away, you sever the ties of relationship. You sever the bonds of intimacy. You walk beyond the promise, all to pursue the sin that you want, that God is trying to protect you from. Ultimately, you and I, we kill the intimacy between us and God the Father. When God created humanity, it was with the intentionality of relationship. This is what his plan was. We were created for relationship, first and foremost between us and God the Father, and then between each other. And it cuts really, really deep, really, really deep when we decide to sever that bond. What God has joined together, humanity has walked away from. And in our departure, in our haste to do what we wanted, we forgot to bring a map, ladies and gentlemen. Forgot to bring our map home. Because we're trying to get what we want, what we want when we want it. Finally, you end up in Kansas clicking your heels like, this doesn't look like home. Problem is, you can't click those heels together enough times or fast enough saying there's no place like home, there's no place like home, there's no place like home, and end up where you belong. You're stuck without a map, you're cold, you're lonely, you're tired because sin will take you farther than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, right? And so when we're lost and confused, it's really easy to just keep wandering deeper into the woods. And in our confusion, we wander and we keep getting farther and farther away from our loving and patient Father who is waiting for us to just come home. Confused, tired, and maybe even a little lonely, we wander into a place that offers us shelter, warmth, maybe even community. But we don't see the strings that are subtly attaching to our heart and to our soul that are pulling us farther farther away from God the Father. Strings that are attached to nefarious things that pull us deeper and deeper and deeper. Sin. Kills intimacy, creates confusion. But there's hope. There's hope. In Hosea chapter 14, verse 4, the author writes this. This is what God says to Hosea to talk to the nation. He says, I will heal their waywardness. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. How did they get to this point? Israel realized where their head was and why there was no sunshine. And they did a fix-it 
they repented. They said, God, I'm, I, 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 I'm sorry. And then they stopped doing the things that were pulling them away. And then they trusted that the Lord was going to save the day. The ultimate message of the book of Hosea, it's not doom, it's actually hope. That's why it's titled salvation. God will judge the heart of men and women. Make no mistake, there will be a day, the Bible talks about it very, very clearly, where we will stand before the throne and we will be held to account. That day is coming and you don't know when. And maybe cancer changed something in me because I realized maybe my, my dash is a little shorter than I thought it was. That reality is very real for me. I don't know what I got left. I'm praying every day. My odds are really good. If I'm going to a craps table, I'm betting I'm black. I'm good. That said, I don't know, and you don't either. So here's what I want you to do. We set aside some time today for us to do some of these things. But it can't stop today. You got to do it tomorrow, and you got to do it on Tuesday, and you got to do it. Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. you got to do it on a daily basis. So here's my challenge to you. Here's your action steps for today and for the week ahead. Number one, if there's no such thing as a private or hidden sin, it's time to confess. Ladies and gentlemen, we are doing communion today. Communion is a great time for you to stop and center your heart and listen to the stillness of God the Father. Recognize where you have fallen short and say, Lord, forgive me. Because of the blood of Christ and the body of Christ, we are in him. If your faith is in him, you are there. Find redemption. Confess. Number two, if sin kills intimacy and creates confusion, it's time to acknowledge that sin. Ask for that forgiveness. And then pursue intimate relationship with God the Father. And the best way to do it, ladies and gentlemen, is this book. This book right here. Last time I preached, I think I challenged everybody to 20 minutes a day, right? Three minutes to listen to a worship song, five minutes of silence, and then 12 minutes to read one chapter. Can you give God 20 minutes? I know the people you're pursuing in your life get more time than that. I know your sitcoms get more time than that. I know the bread that you're baking gets more time than that. Can you give God 20 minutes? And then third, trust. If you hurting. You can trust that your sin has been taken care of through Christ. Put your hope and your faith in the perfect work of Christ who died so that, as Emily talked about earlier, we can have the breath that we breathe today. Because you don't know about tomorrow, you don't even know about later today. You don't. So here's my challenge, folks. God loves us so much that he's waiting for us to come home. Take some time confess. I'm not asking for you to reconcile with the people that you've offended. That might take counseling and coaching and long time. I'm not asking for that. I'm asking for you to stop hiding it from God. Really stop hiding it from yourself. Own it. It's already been taken care of. He loves you. You just got to come clean. Confess, pursue, and trust. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, um, this was an incredibly heavy message to write and to read. And I pray, Lord, that you have just prepared and pricked our hearts to receive it. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit has spoken it over us.
the comfort that we need to know that you love us, that there is no distance that we can go that you can't bridge, that there's no place we can hide from your perfect, perfect plan. Lord, I just pray that we would feel you. Let us return to you and trust in your perfect love. We praise you in the perfect name of Jesus, and I invite everyone to say,